We're going to Mahiki, coolest place in my This is Boris Gelfand, and you are listening to the Full English Breakfast with Lauren Strand and Stephen Gordon. Thanks, Boris, and thank you for tuning in to this episode number 16 of the Full English Breakfast. I'm Macaulay Peterson. We've got 60 seconds with Vlad Kramnik. In defense of Ribka, a Basque novelty in San Sebastian, and much more with international master Lawrence Trent and grandmaster Stephen Gordon. Say science signs. But first, pub talk. Come on then, Trenty. Start us off with some pub talk. The thing that's really caught my eye this month is how Ivanchuk had a meltdown at Reggio Emilia, where against Geary, in a losing position, he gave away all of his pieces. He just gave them away. He could have resigned, but he gave them away and still played on a bit and then eventually resigned. I don't quite get that. I mean, I know he had a torrid time. I think he lost three on the bounce... He was winning the tournament, and he, he just went loopy. And that—that's—that's that's the other side to Ivanchuk, isn't it? So He's—he has these moments of brilliance, Steve, and then he just collapses mentally, psychologically. It's a strange way to lose a game, isn't it? But I mean, if you look at that game, you can understand why Ivanchuk's had a bit of a moment of madness because it looked like such a depressing game, and it—it it does him absolutely no justice to play like that. I mean. I don't know about you, Lawrence. I mean, we all, we all react to a loss in different ways, but there have been occasions where I've played a terrible, terrible game and I've allowed my opponent to play to mate, which is quite comparable, really, that you you sort of um, you you got a lost position and maybe wasting your opponent's time a bit. But, you know, I've been so gutted that I don't want to resign. I just play to mate. But what's your normal reaction then, Trent? If you've had, well... if you've had a shocker, which happens <laughs> quite if a lot. You've had an absolute shocker. How do you react? Do you just resign um, and get out of there? Well, the ones where I get beat comprehensively, I, I, I'm quite happy with. If I, but if I'm totally winning and I blunder it away, I might throw something. I might just neck a pint down the pub quick with a few shots. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I have a reaction, but what I don't do is give away all my pieces to my opponent. I, don't, I just don't do. I don't get that. No. Well, anyway, I mean, so those are the two sides of, of Ivanchuk, and one of the reasons I suppose a lot of people will say, well, why did he never become world champion because he's been up there for 20 years why has he never become world champion it's because he he hasn't got i think and this is my opinion the mental toughness you need when you lose yeah. i don't think he's i think he just goes into this spiral far too quickly well ivan chuk may have been consoling himself with a trip down to the local pub in reggio but uh, meanwhile, Stephen, what are you talking about in the pub this week? Well, if I had the chance to sit down with some of my chess cronies and talk a little bit about what's going on at the moment, I'd be asking people, what number would you put on a rating that Magnus Carlsen has to get to to be compared with the, the rating dominance that Kasparov had in early 2000s? I mean, I kept noticing updates on the internet saying Carlson's like 13 points on the live rating list off 2851, Kasparov's highest rating. And it got me thinking, well, 
let's say he gets to 28.51. I don't think we can say that that is quite as impressive as a 28.51 from like 10, 11 years ago. I want to know, is the number more like 28.80? Is the number 2,900? What does Magnus Carlsen have to get to? To show complete dominance in the rating list. Yeah, uh, 2870, 2880. I don't so, are know. we saying at the top of the game that rating inflation is around 30 points? Well, I assume so. Something like, because if you look at the top 10 in the year 2000 compared to the top 10 now, the average is much higher. And if you look at the, everybody over 2700 from the year 2000, you've probably got double the players now. Over 2,700. You know, somebody out there would be able to calculate. All you listeners out there, please have a have a look into that. What does Magnus Carlsen need to reach with inflation in mind to equal Kasparov's highest rating from the year 2000? He gained points in uh, many of the recent events, even in London where he didn't win, of course. Still doing very well, uh, well enough to pick up a few points. We're sort of wrapping up 2011 in this show a little bit. When we last spoke... I don't think either of you predicted that Kramnik would win London. No. No. I mean, I think that was quite hard to predict. There were so many capable of uh, coming away with a tournament victory, but, I, you know, I was I was set on Magnus. I always am. If Magnus enters a tournament, then he's my favourite. But Kramnik obviously showed that he's a class act and he was taking full advantage of any opportunities that he got. Well, you guys were there all the way through. What did you think? Let's just get something absolutely clear. You cannot rule Vladimir Kramnik out of winning any tournament because he uh, is, you know, an ex-world champion. He's arguably got the most solid game amongst all of the top players. Okay, he very, very rarely loses. But the thing is, of course, the reason why we felt that Carlson would win it is because of the scoring system. And yeah. Carlson is capable of beating anybody with either colour on any day, so it clearly favours him with the three points uh, scoring system. So Vlad, uh, he played fantastically throughout that tournament. He's, he was just very. Sh- I mean, we we all saw it in the analysis. He saw a hell of a lot in that tournament. Yeah, and really sharp. Really saw a lot. Maybe a few years ago, I looked at Kramnik in one of these tournaments and thought, you know, he's probably going to make a plus score, but I don't think he's. I don't think he's capable of winning it with his style of play. But I think his style of play has changed significantly in the last couple of years. He's Especially with black, he's taking a lot more risks with the black pieces and he's looking for active play. I mean, there was a time when he'd draw pretty much every game with black, when he was it, playing Petrovs every time. But he, he seems to have changed his style. And I mean, it's totally unfair now, isn't it, to... Um, label him with this draw nick nickname that he developed around the time when he had this world championship match with Leko, you know. So, like you say, you can't rule him out anymore. You can't, and not only was he an amazing analyst, but he had such a great sense of humour about him. He's a great personality. I loved getting to know him a bit as well. His wife was there, his daughter was there. He said how his wife and his daughter, who, who were there for the first half of the tournament, really helped him, gave him an extra boost, because obviously he'd just come uh, from the town memorial. So he had yeah. two tournaments back-to-back, really tough tournaments. Um, and, you know, he won it and uh, thoroughly deserved 
to win it, actually. Well, Kramnik, a family man now. And uh, in the U.S., we, uh, we're coming up on Super Bowl uh, time, which is dominating the sports news. But one thing I remember always from growing up was that, like, the day after the Super Bowl, you'll see this commercial that would show up, and they shoot it right after the game. They go up to one of the star players on the winning team, and they say, Hey, Joe Smith, you just won the Super Bowl. What are you going to do? And the guy says, I'm going to Disney World. So uh, I, I asked uh, Kramnik if he'd ever uh, been to Euro Disney now that he lives in Paris. We'll spend 60 seconds with Vlad Kramnik and get a little bit of an insight into that sense of humor you talked about. Our daughter, she turned three, actually, just two weeks ago. So we are planning this year finally to visit the Disneyland with her. I think that I'm going to do it in 2012 for sure. You spend uh, most of the year in Paris. Do you get up in the morning? Do you go to your local bakery and get a croissant or a baguette and drink cafe? Or do you get the Paris experience? Well, yeah, sort of, sort of, something like that. I mean, unfortunately, croissant is not allowed anymore by my wife uh, for me because, <laughs> because she's watching out for my weight. Uh, so, no, it, it will more be some kind of yogurt, you know, something uninteresting. But otherwise, yes, yes, I'm living just in the center of Paris and I have my favorite places for coffee, for lunch. And, uh, and okay, I have quite a few friends uh, meeting them pretty often. So, well, normal life, like everybody is living, you know, but I can already feel more like Paris is becoming really my city, like a home city. I, I'm here already for like five years, and uh, yes, I feel at home here definitely now. Do you have a favorite museum, or perhaps a favorite wing of the Louvre, since it's like eight museums in one? <laughs> well, yeah, Louvre is a bit too big to me. I mean, okay, it's a great museum, but uh, I just find it a bit difficult to, to be there, because there are too many attractions. So that's why, actually, I like to go to small museums, or even just exhibitions, just to get there for one hour, because I... I cannot spend more than, let's say, one and a half hour in a museum because somehow I start to get tired and losing concentration a bit. So that's why I prefer small museums. And uh, But uh, talking about all Parisian museums, I, I my favorite is Musée d'Orsay because I like very much Impressionists, especially the French ones. And uh, there is a huge collection of all French Impressionism of the beginning of the 20th century. So I'm, I would say that most often I go there. Now, as an expat living in Europe, I know the difficulty learning a new language. On the other hand, grandmasters often are quite facile at this, learning new languages easily. Uh, no, I don't have any problem with it because I don't learn French. <laughs> <laughs> you, just, you just don't even try. <laughs> I solve this problem. No, well, you see that, uh, uh, well, first of all, I don't really need so much French uh, here because we speak English with my wife already since we met and somehow it became our private language language in a way and it, I think it will be difficult to switch to any other language for us between each other and then I'm trying to teach my daughter Russian so I only speak Russian with her and my wife she only speaks French with her so I don't need and I have a lot of Russian or English speaking friends I mean most of them are Russian or English speaking so I don't need it and therefore I always find an excuse why should I shouldn't learn it now because I have more important things to do like to prepare for world championship or tournaments or whatever but it's getting more and more difficult to explain to my wife why I am I am still not speaking French. So I'm afraid that this year probably I will start uh, learning it. You, you know, I had I have a funny story about on it uh, with Boris Pasky because he he still uh, okay he's living in France for since '73 or '74 and actually his uh, French is still not great. And uh, once I visited him at his uh, place and uh, he had a, a big sign on his on the door of his. Uh, 
cabinet bureau in Russian, which was saying, learn French, idiot. <laughs> but he didn't seem to help him, you know, he just told that he wanted to see it always in front of his eyes, but it was not really very helpful. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I'm thinking about getting something similar in my cabinet also. Okay, thanks, Vlad. You're always very interesting to talk to, and, and uh, next time we'll, we'll do it for a longer stretch. <laughs> okay, au revoir, au revoir. <laughs> this that much in French, I know. <laughs> His au revoir was a bit dodgy, wasn't it, Steve? Uh, well, I mean, he sounds he sounds a little skeptical to pick up this French. I mean, I like the way he phrases it, like he's he said it, that he's afraid he's going to have to learn it eventually because his his wife's not going to be happy with it. It's quite surprising that he's been there for five years and managed to avoid it. Very very surprising. But you know, you could see the humour, and he's he's a he's a good, funny guy there, and you could see that through that small interview. So definitely, um, yeah, he's a top guy. I, I hope he comes back to London, and you know, hope he learns some French as well for his sake before the wife gets the old belt out or something. <laughs> well, Kramnik now has a bit of a break, and so uh, he should have plenty of time to practice his French. Meanwhile, let's check the news. One of the big stories was something that we've spoken about on the show before, and that was the ICGA case against the computer program Ribka. Ribka was accused of plagiarizing earlier programs and was defaulted, had all of its world championship titles withdrawn. It was a big scandal, and now uh, there's a large paper published by uh, Chessbase from a Dr. Soren Ries, essentially saying that the conclusions of the International Computer Gaming Association are bogus, and uh, Ripka was unfairly penalized, and the whole thing was a big racket. Well, I mean, it's, it's saying in this headline on Chessbase that um, most programs profited from using this fruit program. So, I mean, I, what does that mean? Does it mean that all chess programs include some of this computer coding from fruit? Be fruitful and multiply. Oh, wow. Are you happy with that? <laughs> <laughs> no, more seriously, of course. I attempted to read this paper, and I got probably somewhere halfway through the introduction and um, felt I was a bit out of my depth. <laughs> so the truth is, I, don't, I, I, need, I need to be talked to like I'm a golden retriever or something, or like I'm a baby. Just somebody explain it to me in layman's terms. This is where Macaulay comes Macaulay, in. Macaulay, this is where you're going to come in. Well, I appreciate your faith in my uh, technical prowess. Well, but, uh, amongst others. <laughs> I'm afraid I was just as much at sea as you were. I don't know. I mean, it sounds reasonably persuasive, but uh, without being more technical or, or having uh, dug into it in really great depth, it's hard to say. We, all we know then, of course, is that the uh, several of the authors who were responsible for the ICGA report immediately responded, primarily saying that, yes, this is all nice, but it doesn't actually address the fact that the ICGA rules were clearly broken. You know, basically, Reese was arguing that the rules were stupid. I mean, is he saying there that everyone's breaking the rules? Is that what he's saying? He's saying that the rule, the rule is obsolete, it needs to be updated, and the fact that it was used was unfairly penalizing one program in this case. I see. Well, yeah. I mean, that's another one for the Full English Breakfast listeners out there. I mean, break it down to us on the homepage, thefeb.com or 
uh, facebook.com forward slash the FEB. In fact, on there you can get a good little thread going and we'll keep tabs of it. All right, back to the chess. Very interesting tournament over the new year in San Sebastian. They decided to come up with a completely new format, which they're dubbing the Basque system. And the principal feature of it is that the players each round play two games, two classical games simultaneously, one with white and one with black. Uh, What do you guys think of this as a system as players? And uh, do you think we should or will see more tournaments adopting it? I personally love it. I think it's a great idea. This way of playing two simultaneous games is arguably the most fair way to play a tournament because... There are some tournaments, for example, Steve, you'll know when we used to go, sometimes you might even get six whites and three blacks in a nine-rounder if you're very lucky. And this way you've got equal whites and equal blacks. You are playing the same opponent. If you win or lose, there is no way he can claim, oh, well, he had white against me at an advantage. No, we both had white. And, And also it adds another dimension for the actual playing capacity because you've got to be able to manage your clock on two boards, and it must be terribly difficult. This is it. I'd love the idea of entering a tournament that did that. I'd, I'd go and enter, if I had the time, I'd, I'd enter one. Probably over a normal chess tournament now, just to see what it'd be like. But my question is, how much does it change the strategy of a normal game of chess? I mean, if you go in and you've got you've got two games going on, does it change the nature of the way that you play? I think I might play quite differently if I've got two boards in front of me against this someone. This is what I'm saying. I mean, you've got a whole different way of preparing almost for a game now. You should, yeah. Do you want to play something a bit safe with black and play something aggressive with white? Do you want to do vice versa? It really does, for me, do something. Okay, moving on. Thanks very much to everybody who's been participating on our Facebook page. Glad to see that. One of the things we uh, asked was uh, for some New Year's resolutions. What about you, Macaulay? My New Year's resolution is to get the FEB on a more regular schedule. Oh, God. Let's start the New Year by making it bi-monthly. In fact, I want to say right now, we're going to do another show in two weeks not wait a whole month. The fans want it. We want it. We're going to give it to you. Oh, let's I let's reckon, do it. Do you know what? That's the best thing I've heard. That is I a good one. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. That is a good one. Bi-monthly, full English breakfast. Support us, guys. Get your friends to like us. Go on the homepage. Donate. Do what you got to do, because we're going to do this bi-monthly. We're going to get it big. Well, I want to give a big shout-out to the few people who have donated to the show. It means a lot to us. And, in fact, we are also going to give away a new prize, our signed program by Vladimir Kramnik, the signed program from the London Chess Classic. Our winner is Joachim Snuverink. Thanks very much, and we will be sending you that signed program. What a prize that is. A signed program by the X-World Champions. That's good stuff, man. That's great. Well, good luck, everyone with New Year's resolutions. We got quite a lot of responses, so I'm just going to read a few to you and, uh, well, see what you think. Anthony Irving says, In 2012, I will teach my daughter everything I know about chess. I predict it will take up a goodly part of the morning of Sunday, the 1st of January, up until her mid-morning nap. Oh, he's surely done himself an injustice, I'm sure. Mark Nettleton wants to play the birds opening and be his own man. Okay, good luck with that. Mark, a no great psychiatrist. He might be able to um, <laughs> help you out with both of those points. The birds opening. 
What do you reckon, Steve? Is that something you want to aim for in 2012? I'm I'm not sure that I'm going to be taking up the birds opening in 2012. Okay, we had uh, Nathan Somerville. He says, My New Year's resolution is to become as good-looking as Lawrence Trent and to become as good of a chess player. Well, that, that this can't be. What is well, this? Well, yeah. I mean... Did you have a little backhander here, Lawrence? So if you're what? listening, Nathan, hopefully the money's transferred <laughs> across now. No, that was it. I mean, how can I not you can't answer that? What kind of nonsense is that? Mate, you've just got to embrace that you're an extremely good-looking guy. And you're sporting a big FIDE rating, mate. I mean, I'm not sporting a big FIDE rating. I'm not sporting a. Uh, well, you know, in a, in a, relativity, a that is a lovely rating to have. You know, you should just be embracing these things. You're a beautiful guy. Just you know, take the compliment. Are you coming on to me? <laughs> Joining us for the interview, one of the most active players of 2011. He played in every month except for February and April in a major event. I'm talking, of course, about Hikaru Nakamura, also in the news for his work with Garry Kasparov in 2011. That came to an end just before the start of the London Chess Classic. And just before the start of the Tata Steel Chess Tournament in Vikenze, I caught up with him to get some closure on an eventful 2011. Certainly winning here in Vike last year was my biggest achievement to date and it just being back here in and of itself after a sort of a, a, a very up and down year, very up and down end to the year even, it's it's quite nice being back somewhere familiar where, where I have good memories and I can just get used to the scene again and, and get used to the atmosphere and just, just play, hopefully play very good chess. One of the things that looking back on 2011 that I regret is First of all, opting not to play the U.S. Championship um, in May, because but by not playing that, it, it sort of left me with, uh, I'm going to say, f- five-month break almost, essentially, without a serious top-level tournament after Vike. So um, I, I, feel, I feel like that was a big mistake, and that, in large part, I think, contributed to my very up-and-down year, because after that long break, uh, I played I played the match with Ponomarev, and, and, and I held my own, but then in, in Dortmund, I, I completely fell apart and had a very poor result. Well, since then, it's it's really just been good or great tournament, and then really bad tournament, just one after the other. It certainly wasn't a break in the, the sense that most people think of a break. You had the Amber tournament. True. Um it's it's difficult because for me I separate the events. An event like Monaco was much more fun. I don't I don't think I've played a, a tournament quite like that. Um, certainly not with blindfold and rapid chess. But then also just the level of preparation. Mainly I just sort of would come up with an idea right before the game and play it as opposed to doing any serious work. So in retrospect, do you think that it was it was too much? It was too busy? Too many events? I don't think it was too busy. I, I think working with Kasparov, uh, w- one of the things that he certainly advocated was playing less and trying to pick uh, top-level events. And, and in many ways, that's one of the reasons I didn't play in the U.S. Championship. But I feel like since I started playing uh, these tournaments back-to-back, I mean, Moscow was a very bad result. But then in London and in Reggio, I felt that overall I played quite well. So I think in order to play well, I just need to consistently be playing as much as I can. Well, I wanted to try to, to sort of wrap up the year for you, and obviously the Kasparov was a major feature of it. Lately, I've been making the argument that, in a way, you were misunderstood the 
statements in London about Kasparov, and I wanted to give you a chance to respond to some of, of the critics, but it, was, it seems to have been interpreted that you were saying somehow that uh, you know, Kasparov plays the middle game badly. I, I, th- I think that was more uh, in the heat of the moment. You know, I, I, I sort of went a little bit over, over the top with my comments. Um, essentially what I was saying is that, that most of the preparation most of the work that we did together was in the openings, and that was his main strength. I think that, you know, when it comes to openings, he, he really revolutionized the game, and that's that's the difference between now and in the past. And, um, you know, it's it's really too bad that some people interpret it as though I was saying that, quite simply, he's not a very strong player in the middle game or the end game, because to get to the very top levels of chess, you have to be very proficient in, in all aspects of the game. So, certainly, I, I wasn't trying to take anything away from his accomplishments, but... Um, I, I, I was simply trying to state that I felt his, his main strength was in the openings. You know, it happens. Sometimes in the heat of the moment you say things, you, you might say, wish you had said things a, a, a different way. And uh, I just hope that people understand what, where I'm coming from, what I'm trying to um, explain. Well, at the same time, it did appear that you were at least keeping a distance of it in London. Other people said that as well. How would you characterize the end of, the, of that relationship? Are you still in touch? Are you still uh, on good terms now? In in London, I was I was definitely keeping my distance. Uh, I, I guess in many ways, I felt that towards the end of our work together, that Sparov wasn't trying that hard. Um, I, I felt like, uh, especially in Moscow, I, I know that during the term he was in Moscow, um, and he he never came by the playing site. He never actually spoke to me in person. And it, it sort of it, it rubbed me the wrong way. And, and when the tournament uh, went south and, and finally I decided that I was done working with him, it really left this bad taste in my mouth. And then going to London pretty much right after Moscow, it's, it's very hard to just change the whole mindset. And so that's why, that's why I didn't, didn't speak with him there. But I've, I've had a few conversations with him on Skype since then. And uh, I think now uh, we're, we're on speaking terms. So what do you think of that, Lawrence? What do you think about these these comments that Nakamura made and what he what he's just suggested. Were you a little shocked by it at the time? I was actually and and I didn't say anything and then the next day I think somebody in the crowd said, What do you think of Nakamura's comments? And I thought, this is gonna turn into a media chess storm or something because look, let's face it, and and Hikaru sort of admitted that. Gary Kasparov is, in my opinion, the greatest player that ever lived. Openings, middle games, end game—the whole game—he had everything. He did—he did absolutely have everything. So I was really surprised the way Nakamura phrased it. Here's what he actually said. This is a quote: "You look at middle games or end games, and I'm quite convinced that there are other players who were better than he, than Kasparov. But he was able to get the advantages out of the opening, so that was his main strength." Surely, what Nakamura is looking for out of this um, relationship is to get some insights into where he's going a little bit wrong. And maybe chess has developed to the point where Kasparov is a very, very strong player, but he might not be able to help Nakamura increase his level in the later stages of a game. I mean, would that be fair to say, or am I just... uh... I would disagree with that, because I think what Kasparov has more than anybody else at the moment is experience. And this is a guy who was world champion for 20 years. This is a guy who played numerous tournaments, won numerous tournaments, won it by massive margins, and has got an experience of the old Russian school right through to the new schools. Just, I I don't know, I don't know. How much can you get out of this? What are you aiming to achieve out of this relationship with Kasparov? I mean, if, if what you're aiming to achieve is you get an insight into the mindset 
of someone who dominated the game for such a long time, then great. But if you're looking to make changes to your chess and improve it in different ways, I think that's going to be quite difficult for Kasparov to do with with high-ranked players like that. I mean, how is he going to change Nakamura's game in order to be one of the top three players in the world? I mean, how is he going to do it? I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't think it lies so much in the chess itself, but the psychology and the preparation aspect. You know, for example, giving him advice about playing super tournaments or not playing this tournament. That was very Botvinnik-like. That's almost what Botvinnik said. I remember when I read My Great Predecessors, and I remember Botvinnik saying, Kasparov wanted to go and play some tournament. Botvinnik said, no, you, you're not playing that tournament. You've got to prepare. For and, and, you know, that sort of thing, that sort of experience that he's got from so many years going about preparation... Um, how how to prepare optimally because this is a guy who you know used to do 10 hours a day clearly he's got a wealth of experience and clearly he's got a lot to offer well and clearly that can also come across as being overbearing and controlling which seems to have been the case with Carlson leading to their breakup and now once again the case here last up for today uh, something a little on the lighter side. I came across it uh, kind of randomly, but apparently this was a, a contest of chess.com. They put up a $1,000 prize fund for people to make videos, uh, and one of the most creative ones was a kind of a, a rap piece called In the Chess Club, which you can find on YouTube uh, from user Crimes Against Vanity. Let's hear a few seconds of that. I'm a positional guy, she's a material girl And she was sitting next to me like, boy, you just trusted me So I showed her all the moves, she was a tasty little recipe Soon I had her begging me for three full repetition But baby, we should switch it up and try some new positions Cause I'm into playing quick, I ain't into laying plans It's a small for made girl, call it a one-night stand Baby, I can make your bedrock, basics of chess, man I'm king on the G-spot, O-O-X glam And get you horny all for me when I sack you like my queen As if my name was Paul Morphe uh, I know what you find thousand ELO rating over nine thousand. Straight up, you can find me in the club, acting like a thug, baby. I got what you need if you need to play some bug. I'm into playing chess, I ain't into making love. So if you wanna make with me, you know where to look me up. You can find me in the club, acting like a thug, baby. I got what you need if you need wow. to play some bug. I'm they didn't win the prize, I'm told, but uh, congratulations anyway. That's not bad, is Apart it? Apart from the bit where it says, I'm not into making love. I mean, that's not the... We're trying to, we're trying to promote the game, not to say we're a bunch of hermits. <laughs> I liked it. I thought it was an improvement on the 50 original, so... Uh, oh, my you know, God. I might have to download that for my iPod. There are some Uber Geek references in there. I especially like the ELO rating over 9,000. The reference to the uh, anime meme. Oh, yeah. I like the little freefall repetition little rhyme there yeah, that went yeah. on. They did all right with that. I'll just say the, the chorus there. <laughs> We're into playing chess, not into making love. We could be into doing both, guys. Come on. All right, that's enough for this, the first edition of the Full English Breakfast in 2012. But we'll be back for our first bi-monthly show. Look forward to that. And in the meantime, we'll be posting on the Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash the FEB. And also do visit our website at thefeb.com. Go! This is my news in 2012 full English prep. That's what I'm talking about.